we got together at the UU church and we figured we'd have, I don't know, 10, 12, maybe two dozen people there. We opened up the doors and we were just going to do a little, you know, a little welcome. And then we'd get into small groups and we figured each small group would have, you know, two or three people in it. And then we'd talk, start talking about, you know, what kinds of things could we as the volunteer community do to help refugee resettlement. And the doors opened and people started coming in and they started coming in and they started coming in. And before we knew it, there were hundreds of people in the room. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is Carol Tashi. She sat down with us to discuss her life in Rutland, Vermont, and how her community came together to push the growing refugee resettlement program in Rutland forward, as well as provide support for the incoming residents. Your host for today is me, Anusha Ghosh. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode with Seeking Refuge. Today, I am sitting here with Carol Tashi. Carol Tashi is an organizer with Rutland Welcomes, a group of Rutland residents dedicated to helping local refugees settle in. Carol, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you for asking me. So my first question for you is, can you describe to the audience, what is your career background? Most recently, I've done two things. I teach at the community college. So Vermont has a really thriving multi-campus community college system. And so I've been teaching there for about 15 years. Prior to that, my teaching experience was at the University of New Hampshire. So I taught there, I worked there for about 20 years. But probably much more interesting to your listeners is I ran, along with my partner Dennis, I ran an organic vegetable farm for about a dozen years or so where we grew organic veggies and sold to schools and markets and community members and so I think the folks around here that's how they know me although I haven't done that that's been we've been out of that for about a year and a half so yeah that's my my past yeah that's incredible what do you teach at the community college I mostly teach first semester seminar classes so I don't know if if your school has those, but they're very, they're wonderful classes. They're very open-ended and they're really designed to help students. We have a non-traditional student body. So there's not just the 18, 19, 20-year-olds, but there's people who have been coming back to school after being, you know, in the military or adjudicated or, you know, living in situations that weren't working for them. And so it really is designed to say, hey, college is something that you can really explore. You can develop skills in far more than just the content area. So it's not a English class or a chemistry class or whatever. It really is a class around critical thinking, analysis, getting out of your own world. So I absolutely love that. And then I also teach, occasionally I'll teach a, a, a food class to kind of talk about the local food system. So Wow, that's incredible. Okay, so my next question for you is, how long have you been in Rutland? Uh, How would you describe the town of Rutland? Oh, that's a great question. So I've been in Rutland since 2005. Prior to that, I was in New Hampshire. So I've always been kind of in the northern, well, that's not true. The last 40 years or so, I've been in the northern New England area and moved to Rutland, really looking for a community where we, so I say me, my partner Dennis and I, where we could 
make a home, like make a, like a long-term home, but also feel like we could do some good. And Vermont is a very progressive state and lots of amazing things happen in so many of the communities in Rutland. And we decided not to choose to live in one of the more well-established communities in terms of progressiveness. Rutland always has, has a reputation of being more on the conservative side for the state. It has struggled. It's a very working class town, struggles with unemployment and certainly, you know, problems with income inequality and those kinds of things. And so we felt like here's a place where we could settle down and feel like we could be connected. Little did we know how connected we could be. Rutland, I think the way I describe Rutland is it's a magical place. And I don't say that lately, like I've had the good fortune of living in a number of different very wonderful communities, you know, Portland, Oregon, and Providence, Rhode Island, and Concord, New Hampshire, places that were just wonderful places to live. But there's a magic in Rutland that is, I have never found anywhere else. If you are willing to get involved in Rutland, whether you are, you know, a seventh generation Vermonter or a newcomer, you are welcomed in, no, not not across the board, right? There are certainly those who really don't want new blood or new ideas, but I just have felt that this is a community that if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to come in and volunteer and get involved, you will be embraced and you will be supported and you will have people around you to work with you. And that's why I think it's a very magical place. It's got its problems like any community, but there's a certain magic to it. And I'll just, as an aside, I was doing a workshop, kind of playing supporting role to a workshop to two of the folks who moved here as refugees from Syria. And when somebody asked her the question, you know, what do you think about Rutland? She said, I think Rutland is magical. And I thought, oh, that's so great to hear that that view that I have is a view that is shared by so many others. So it's a very special place. Again, you've interviewed Chris Loris, and so you know it is not without its problems, but I'll let him be the person who talks about those things. <laughs> Thank you so much for that insight. Yeah, I hope I get the opportunity someday to visit Rutland. Sounds like a really impactful, really beautiful place. It really is. I agree. So my next question is, so you're an organizer with Rutland Welcomes. Uh, can you discuss more of what Rutland Welcomes is and your role in it? Sure. So Rutland Welcomes is, is really just a collection of volunteers. We're not a formal organization. We made the decision very early on not to establish ourselves as a you know, a local nonprofit or a 5013C or whatever. We felt the strength that we had was the fact that we had hundreds of people who were willing at a moment's notice to say, I'll do it. I'll sign up for this. I'll make this happen. And so it's always confusing to explain what Rutland Welcomes is. People will always say to me, you know, how do I become a member? Or you know, where, where can I find information about it? We're really just a collection of volunteers who, you know, we, we are there to support, to do whatever we can to make sure that the people who are joining our community feel welcomed, feel supported. And I think by way of explanation of that, and if this is interesting for you, 
I think it might be a good idea to explain how Rutland Welcomes was born. And Chris would have done it with much more humility. So I'm gonna give him lots of props for that. So I'm gonna take several steps back if that's okay, to when before Rutland Welcomes was born, before refugee resettlement came into our community officially, I was lucky enough to, Chris Loris, I consider just, again, like I said, he's a real hero to me, but I also consider him a friend. I was lucky enough to be one of the people that Chris shared his idea that Rutland and Vermont in general has been losing population for quite some time. Rutland especially is one of the places where we've been losing population and you you can see it you know you could see it in you know jobs that go unfilled right especially in this economy right and so Chris as mayor was always on the looking for how could we make the community a more vibrant healthy inclusive place and so one of the things he was exploring was refugee resettlement. And, and again, he'll, he'll have talked about that. But I was one of the people that was lucky enough to have a conversation with Chris early on when it was still in the let's talk about it stage. And of course, <laughs> I was very enthusiastic by this idea that Rutland could become a refugee resettlement community and worked very much behind the scenes just in whatever way could support Chris, not in any official way or not even, I don't think I was very instrumental. I just was one of his cheerleaders. When Chris announced that refugee resettlement was coming to Rutland and there was a nice press conference. And again, I was lucky enough to be one of the people there who was asked to speak as just a community member. The enthusiasm was just, I mean, it was overwhelming. We had a group of people that included, you know, students and business leaders and some political leaders and the superintendent of Rutland City Schools. And it was just like such enthusiasm, like, yes, Rutland has become a refugee resettlement community. <laughs> that enthusiasm was, I don't really know how to say it, it was long lived, right? It, it stayed, but I guess we didn't all realize there was gonna be such a backlash, okay? Prior to the backlash, when we all found out this was happening, we decided that let's gather together a small group of people. Let's, let's ask the UU church if we could use their space and let's just put it out, out there to say, you know, hey, refugee resettlement. And if anybody's interested in learning more about it or if anybody's interested in becoming a volunteer, let's see what we as a community might wanna do. And it was a number of people, Pat Hunter and Jenny Gartner and Stephanie Jones and just some really amazing people. And we got together at the UU church and we figured we'd have, I don't know, 10, 12, maybe two dozen people there. And we opened up the doors and we were just gonna do a little, you know, a little welcome and then we'd get into small groups. And we figured each small group would have, you know, two or three people in it. And then we'd talk, start talking about, you know, what kinds of things could we as the volunteer community do to help refugee resettlement. And the doors opened and people started coming in and they started coming in and they started coming in. And before we knew it, there were hundreds of people in the room. We were flabbergasted. We didn't know what to do because we had planned on just this being a small group of people sitting around talking. So we started off, luckily Pat Hunter is one of our 
key founding members and she is an amazing facilitator. So she jumped right in and we introduced Chris Loris and we introduced what was happening. And then we decided that we had hundreds of people and let's break into small groups like we had planned and start planning what we were going to do. And the, the name Rutland Welcomes had already been born. And so we were like, okay, what are we going to do in the name of Rutland Welcomes? And so we had groups, you know, we had groups of like 20 people talking about, you know, English language lessons and making food and, you know, how are we going to do transportation? How are we going to make sure people get to where they need to go? And who's going to do childcare? And like just hundreds of people all signing up to do the hard work. And so that's how it was born. And that's how it continued. And again, there was a small group of us who consider ourselves, we call ourselves the communication team, the ComCom. And we, I think we served as a little bit of a steering committee, but we were definitely not leaders. It was definitely not a hierarchical group of people. It was somebody, somebody signed us up for Slack and Slack is supposed to be, you know, I think if you have like 10 people, it's free, but if you have over 10 people, you have to pay. And so when Slack, when the Slack leadership heard what we were doing, they're like, you can have all of Slack. You can do anything you want, no charge. You know, so they supported us. I don't even know where Slack comes from, California or someplace. And so we really just started as what are the different groups that would need to support folks when they arrive? Now we did not do this. We did it a little bit rogue. There was still USCRI and their folks were up in Burlington and they were coming down to Rutland to say, this is what we will need. And this is what other community members have done. We went a little rogue. We probably went <laughs> above and beyond. We probably drove them absolutely crazy with our enthusiasm. But from this group really became the core group of volunteers that not only became official USCRI volunteers, and USCRI has very clear uh, delineation of volunteers. There's the family friend, there's the somebody, you know, people who will provide transportation to doctor's appointments. There are those who will help with English language lessons. There will those who will help with childcare. So we fill those roles. But then we went above and beyond. We're like, let's get gift baskets together and let's organize that people, when they come, they can have every possible thing. Their apartments will be fully formed with, you know, not just the essentials of like toilet paper and, and you know, furniture, but like, you know, maple syrup and, and children's books and toys. And so we really went. I think rogue is probably how USCRI would describe us, but I think they even they appreciated our absolute enthusiasm where we went above and beyond and uh, just pulled everything together that we possibly could, expecting 25 families to be coming within you know the, the months and years year to come. So that's how we formed. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. You're welcome. Let me give you one story that might be interesting to your listeners. One of the roles I took on was gathering donations. And at the time I lived right in Rutland City. I actually have moved outside of the city, just about eight miles outside the city since then. But I lived in a home with a front porch, you know, with an open air front porch. And so one of the jobs I took on was organizing all the different materials that we would need, both the essentials like toilet paper and 
envelopes and stamps to the fun stuff, the gift basket things. And so I would just say to people, you know, this is what we need. And we had a whole spreadsheet or whatever. And, you know, I'm farming, so it's not like I'm going to be there. So just drop things off on my front porch. Make sure you put your name on it so I can check you off this spreadsheet, but just drop things off on my front porch. And I would come home every day <laughs> and the front porch would be filled, filled. My neighbors would say to me, you know, oh, I saw three more people coming or I saw 10 more people coming or whatever. So every day we would come home and we would find, you know, so many things on the front porch. I'll never forget the day when we, <laughs> we came home to 50 bed pillows on the front porch. And there was a volunteer. She ran a business in Woodstock, which is a couple of towns over. And she just said to all of her patrons, we need bed pillows. And next thing you know, I don't know how she got, I don't know what kind of truck she must have driven, 50 bed pillows on the front porch. You know, all those had to come inside and we had a very small house. And so our living room was just filled, like the entire living room was filled with bed pillows and everything else. And so it was just really, it, it was like a holiday every single day. It was like your birthday every single day coming home to what was on the front porch and then saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And what we ended up doing with all this stuff is we made connections within the community. The local newspaper gave us their warehouse space to store furniture, the local co-op. Behind the co-op is some open space that is owned by the person who owns the building and he and the co-op agreed that we could use that. So we started storing everything in different places around the community. So it would go from the porch to the living room to whatever storage facility we had. And we had enough of everything by early December, like before December for 25 families, anticipating that 25 families would be coming. So it was quite fun. Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. I, I can't imagine the pride you felt when you saw that many donations, uh, that much engagement arrive at your front door. <laughs> it's funny that you use the word pride. I would say humility. Like mm -hmm. I was just so humbled by the fact that all, you know, like people would thank me and I'm like, please don't thank me. Like my job was sitting at a computer and making sure the spreadsheet was up to date. Like, please don't thank me thank the hundreds and hundreds of people who got all that stuff there. So I was just constantly humbled by how easy it was to get everything we needed. There was no struggle for anything, you know? Like I said, maple syrup, maple syrup's really big around here. So, you know, asking a maple syrup producer, and next thing you know, 25 bottles of maple syrup were on the front floor. You know, it was just amazing. Okay, so that's Beautiful. that. <laughs> Yes. So my next question is, do you have any personal stories uh, with the refugees that arrived? Yeah. So thank you. You're asking about personal stories and I have many. Again, I'm going to kind of go back a little bit. So I, I lived in the city and small city, but it is a city and got a phone call one night, probably around eight o'clock at night, that said, guess what? They're here. <laughs> there was no, one of the things that USARI will say to us is that it's a very much of a game of waiting, 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 hurry up, right? Because 
when when somebody gets on a plane, that's sometimes the first that the welcoming community knows that somebody's coming, which is a little bit crazy, right? But we had already set up two apartments, not completely, but pretty much. Um, and so actually, no, that is not true. So we did not have any apartments set up at that point. So I get a phone call from Cheryl Hooker, who is a now retired state senator, amazing woman who was one of our state senators from our Rutland County and got a phone call from her saying, they're here. There's a family staying at my house and there's a family staying at somebody else's house who have just arrived, but they've arrived with nothing. Like the outfit that they're wearing and that's it. We need diapers, we need clothes, we need cell phones, we need food. We, I mean, you know, they're at our house, but we don't have anything. And so this is eight o'clock at night. And so I could not get into any of the places where we had things stored. Maybe it was nine o'clock at night. So I went into my closet <laughs> and I said, okay, like what sizes? And she's like, well, there's small. And so I went into my closet, I went into Jen's closet and I just pulled any amount of clothes I could. I had no children's clothes because I wasn't, I don't have children at this point. And so gathered everything I could, ran to Walmart, which was the only store that was open at that time, went into you know the diaper aisle and the cell phone aisle and whatever just like grabbed everything and here we had been like we were so organized we were so clear that we had everything we needed and when people came and they needed clothes we had made deals with the local thrift shops that they could go and buy whatever they wanted for free and you know we were all organized. and then suddenly it was eight or nine or whatever time at night it was and they were here and so it was really amazing to just gather everything up and first go to Cheryl's house and like drop all these things. And, and these, you know, this was the Ali's and they were exhausted and the kids were, you know, babies at the time and they were exhausted and the family was exhausted. And, oh, I know the other thing I brought was I said to Dennis, let's go into the root cellar and we just grabbed like potatoes and carrots and onion, you know, all this, this squash and whatever. We just brought all this food over. And that was such an amazing connection because Ahmed, who was the man of, of that family, um, the husband, the father of that family, worked in agriculture back in Syria. And so here I'm bringing these, you know, like the clothes and the diapers, yes, and the cell phones, and yes, those were very, very necessary, but he just couldn't believe I was bringing him vegetables that we had grown. And so it made that immediate connection. Ahmed and I always had that very strong connection around food, around grown food. He was more in the agricultural engineering side of things, and I was definitely more in the digging in the dirt side of things. He knew more than I did, but it was just that really nice connection. So that was the first connection. The second family who came, or actually the, the, the other family that came, they, I got to meet them. They moved very quickly into one of the apartments that had been set up and that apartment was around the corner from my house where i lived and so i was so lucky that i could both of the families lived in, the, in, in a building that had two apartments i was so fortunate that i could just like hop on my bicycle and ride over and see them anytime i wanted and so i really got to spend a lot of time with them and two very quick stories one is the hazar and hazam's family the alahawks their son 
Muhammad was probably three or four when they moved in. I don't know. He was young. He was a baby. And I evidently say, oh my, a lot, which I did not realize I said that a lot. And so I would be saying, oh my, oh my, whatever. And he started mimicking me. So like one of his first English expressions was, oh my. And so we got this joke, this running joke going that I would call him Carol because I'm like, you sound just like Carol. And he would call me Muhammad. So here's this little kid. We, we had very little language to share, very little language to share with the entire family, but that became our connection. The other connection that we made is I just was over there all the time. You know, if they needed something, they knew I was around the corner. I remember the first 4th of July, which is was several months they had been here for, for half a year or so, but fireworks are really big on 4th of July. And I realized, I don't know if they know that fireworks are really big on 4th of July. Fireworks are scary. I'm not a fan of fireworks. I think the fireworks are horrible for domestic animals, wild animals, people with PTSD, people who have you know, served in the military, whatever it is. And I just remember like hopping on my bike and running over as fast as I could, you know, riding over as fast as I could to say, okay, this is what's going on. And you know, all that kind of stuff, just having that really close connection to them, being able to go over whatever I, I could, whatever I wanted to, seeing them, you know, taking them, taking the kids to slide. And it was just such a wonderful way of, I felt like I actually felt more welcomed in my community than I ever had. And this is a community that's very welcoming because they were so welcoming to me. It was always, you know, sit down and have a, a cup of Syrian coffee, which I'm like, I don't drink a lot of caffeine <laughs> and, you know, wonderful food and dates and dalmatias and that kind of stuff. And so I, I could be telling you stories. Uh, I can tell you as many stories as you want, but I just thought those two were kind of beginning stories, like welcoming stories. So anyway. Yes, those stories were beautiful. Thank you so much <laughs> for sharing them. So my next question for you is, how has being a rural town impacted Rutland's inclusion and welcoming of refugees? That's a great question. So even though it's called Rutland City, we're a very rural state. And even though it is a city, there's still that Vermont rural spirit, okay? So I think that's a great thing. I think it's impacted it in several ways. First and foremost, unfortunately, as in any community, and I think that's important to know, that there will be those who see the world very differently than those of us who believe in inclusiveness and belonging and diversity and welcoming and love and <laughs> community. There are those who, and again, I, I, I believe there's, I think this is part of the, makeup of Vermont as a rural state. It's also, as you probably know, it's an incredibly white state. And there are those who like it that way. And there are those who would like to keep it that way. And there are those who their contribution, and I use that in quotes or sarcastically, contribution is to say the door is closed. 
if you don't have a family background here, if you don't share our, I mean, all those dog whistles, if you don't share our cultural heritage, if you don't share, I mean, basically, if you don't share our whiteness. So that definitely impacts it. And we faced a horrible backlash from those people. I still believe to this day, as I think we see across the country and the world, that, that tends to be a small group of people, but that tends to be a very vocal group of people. And they were vocal. And they, the fear that I think comes, I think the more rural a state or more rural a community, even, I was gonna say even in Vermont, but that's not fair. The more rural a community, the more that fear can play into it. And so fear was definitely a big thing. We heard things like they're gonna institute Sharia law in our, in our community, or uh, they're going to bring disease, or they don't believe in, you know, they're not gonna assimilate into our community. So I believe that's a part of it. I don't think that that's unique to rural. I think that that is probably, unfortunately, a small vocal minority in no matter what community you live in. So that's over and done with. That was a horrible chapter, but that's interestingly enough, that controversy died with the election of Donald Trump because refugee resettlement died with the election of Trump. So we had three families move in you know, all those fears that all the fear mongering that they instituted, you know, obviously none of that came to fruition. And then Donald Trump stopped refugee resettlement or pretty much stopped it. And the controversy died and the families were here. So anyway, the other way it impacts it is a much more practical way. So we lack public transportation. We have a fairly decent public transportation system within the small city, and this is a very small city, right? And you can get from the city to the university that's, you know, a couple of towns over, and you can get to the mountain where the skiers are. And But it's very difficult to live outside of the city proper if you don't have a car. And that's an issue across the board, right? That's an income inequality issue. That's an issue of all sorts of things. And so we, and it plays very strongly today, even more so than it did in the beginning. It's really important that people find the right housing when they join the community, you know, the new, new Americans coming in, that they find places to live inside the city so that they can take advantage of the public transportation. And housing is a real issue in, I think it's everywhere. The cost of housing is just going really high. The number of available houses or places to rent is really low. And so it's very difficult to us. So when we're fine, when we're, and I say we, the folks at URCRI are the ones who are finding housing, but there's a real need to find it within this small, you know, X seven square miles or whatever Rutland City is, or else people are kind of stuck out in the more rural side of the community without transportation. So I think that impacts it. I, I, I think that impacts it. I think it's impacted by, you know, we, we're small. And so there's not a plethora of places to worship. 
you know, unless you're Catholic or Christian, or, you know, there's not a plethora of places to buy a, a variety of food. You know, we've gotten the local co-op, we've been absolutely wonderful, our food co-op, to bring in halal meat and to bring in, you know, foods that people might find more familiar. But because we're rural, those things are harder to find. There's not as much of a community. So it's not like you're moving into one of the families that lived in Rutland for many, many years ends up moving to Dearborn, Michigan, where there's a huge vibrant community, where there's, you know, people who speak Arabic in the schools and, you know, grocery stores that you can find halal meat really easily or whatever. I understand that. I understand that desire to be someplace where there's more of a community. I think of when my grandparents came to this country from Greece, they moved into Little Greece, you know, <laughs> where they, my grandmother never learned really to speak very much English and certainly never re learned to read or write English because she lived within a community of other people who came from the, her country of origin. I think it's harder in rural communities because that's not so much a reality. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. That was okay. some really incredible insight. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. My next question is, is there anything that you want to add to this interview that we haven't already covered? One family who lives here now, they just recently became American citizens. And th this is their story to tell, but I'll just very briefly say it. They had a 4th of July party. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I teach in my class, we do a unit on, is the American dream alive or dead? And I'm not a big believer in the American dream. I don't think there really was an American dream for all people in the history of this country. I think if you were cis white male, maybe, you know, but for the first time probably ever, I, I sound like a Michelle Obama, first time I'm proud of being American. That's not what I'm trying to say. I think for the first time ever going to their 4th of July party, I said, wow, this is the American dream. Like, we went to a party and it was people who were just so enthusiastic to be American citizens and everything was red, white, and blue. It was phenomenal. It was an eye-opener for me. Their story, again, that is their story, not my story to tell. I think their story would be an amazing story. But I also know that Amila and Jenny would probably have other people that they would recommend. Yeah, so. thank you so much. <laughs> Can I tell one more story? Yeah. I just want to tell one more story in that, and it's a very, it's perhaps a silly story, but so I teach a class in, at the college, the community college, every once in a while, not always. And it's called the power of food in film, literature, and culture. And I always laugh and say, I don't know really anything about literature, food, and culture, but I definitely know food. And so I teach it very much from the politics of food. But I've also learned that the culture of food is so very important. They should have always known that. Again, I told you, I, I grew up in a very, 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 you know, first generation Greek family. You know, my, my parents, my grandparents, my cousins, whatever. And so food was always, you know, very, very important. But one of the things I learned was how important the food is from a cultural perspective. And so Hazar, and Layla, and Layla did not come to this country as a refugee. She's from Kurdistan, and she and her husband came here. Again, I don't know their origin stories in terms of how they came here, but they've been living in Vermont or in Rutland for quite a while. Came to my class, 
and taught my students how to make dolmazios, stuffed grape leaves. Okay, because that was something we could make in a classroom. We didn't have a kitchen or anything like that. And that was such an eye opener to me, hearing her talk about what food meant to her in, in, when she was living in Syria, how all of the women, it would be Dalmazia day and all the women would get together and they would all, they would all come together in somebody's kitchen and they would just make hundreds and hundreds of Dalmazias. And as she's telling the story, I'm watching all of these primarily white, primarily only lived in Vermont, primarily fairly inexperienced in terms of the bigger world and cultural experiences out there, watch them rolling <laughs> grape leaves and hearing stories about how food connects to culture, how food connects to family, how food connects to love. And I think that from that day forward, we did that maybe six weeks into the semester. I felt like for the entire rest of the semester, I had students who really understood the power of food and culture. And I will always thank Hazar and Layla for offering that to, again, my students who, who had none of those experiences early on. So I guess the reason to tell that story is Rutland Welcomes makes it sound as if, you know, here we are a bunch of volunteers offering to help those who, you know, fill in the blank, those who are less fortunate, those who don't know, those who have come through hardship, those who are whatever. And, and that's the hierarchy of volunteer, you know, those who have and those who don't, or those who give and those who take or whatever. And I think that's a really dangerous assumption that we make around volunteerism and around community, because I think that and that I hope that silly little Dalmazia story shares that as a volunteer with Rutland Welcomes, it's not me giving, it's us all getting. And that was a really profound, I mean, that, that's earth shattering to people who think that, well, we have it all and so we're gonna help because it's not that. So anyway, that's how I'll end. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank You're you welcome. for all that you have given our podcast in this interview. Well, I look forward to hearing the stories that you are sharing. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yes, yes. Thank you so much again for taking time out of your schedule and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. That was Carol Tashi talking about the magic of rural communities and their capacity to welcome and support refugees. If you want to support Rutland Welcomes, navigate to the link in the episode bio to access their Facebook. If you want to find and support a refugee resettlement program, navigate to a link in the bio to find a refugee resettlement program near your location. If you like this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. 
You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your host for this week was me, Anusha Ghosh. This episode was edited and produced by me and reviewed by Claire Matz. Our executive producers are Claire Matz and Victoria Halsey. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.